All right, so we've been in a series in the Corinthian letters, been interrupted by a lot of things, finally getting towards the end of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I want to take a break at the end of it, which we'll finish next week, and do something on the Benedict Option and the books we've been reading uh, for a few weeks, and then we'll do 2 Corinthians. I think the context of those are related to uh, the books that we're reading. Uh, This series... Paul's focus is on unity, unity of the body as a holy community. The Corinthians, however, have been divided over a lot of issues, uh, which he will systematically address. He also is going to address issues that they have regarding marriage, and uh, particularly in their time of distress, which is related to uh, some of the things we'll talk about. Issues of idolatry and meat sacrificed idols, they're living in a pagan context. Uh, He addresses the communion of the body of Christ with each other and their their variability, not being a disunity aspect. Throughout that letter, he addresses knowledge leading to arrogance, which puffs up, and the need for humility and maintaining unity in the body. And he says that requires self-limitation, something that's difficult for us. We finish the three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, which continues the theme of unity by addressing spiritual gifts. And Paul explains the difference between their pagan past, where they just followed their emotions and their uh, circumstances and whatever was going on and assumed it was God talking to them, uh, to now the Spirit of God is in them, the Word of God is with them, and they know what God is saying. Uh, and so that presence is allows that presence of God's Spirit allows them to be connected to God and to each other. The presence of God in us manifests itself in a variation of gifts, ministries, and effects, but that's not to divide us or to make one better than the other. They're intended to provide for the whole body so that we can function into maturity in the image of Christ, and that requires love, which he addresses in chapter 13. He also clarifies in chapter 14 the priorities. He contrasts prophecy or proclaiming God's word with tongues, which is prayer that is not fully understood, and says that that which does benefit for the body is to be preferred when we're together. Uh, And so the goal of being together is not to get your individual needs met, but to meet the needs of the community, if we all do that, our individual needs would certainly be met in that context. So now in the last chapter, 15 and 16, (coughs) Paul's going to focus on a priority that he calls the gospel. So in chapter 15, verses uh, 1 through 11, he changes his tone and subject. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first priority what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
He appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, interesting thing here. This is old material for us. There's so much in this chapter, it could be a series. I'm not going to go into the details. I want to try to get the flow of it, because his argument is that at the heart of the good news is the message of resurrection. And that the message of resurrection is actually what's critical. He says that the gospel that we preach, that good news that we preach to you, which you believed, by which you're saved, where you stand, unless you believed vainly. He uses the word vain three times in this chapter. There is a belief that has no effect on you. There's a belief that doesn't really mean anything, and that is vanity, meaningless belief. Well, I believe it, but it doesn't affect my life. Uh, I get people all the time that say, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, which means I don't have to do anything. What relationship do you have that you don't have to do anything? It's just stupid. Every relationship requires maintenance. Every relationship (coughs) requires relational rules. And therefore, our relationship to God and to each other involves doing things and acting in accordance with those things. So he says, that message that you received is that the Messiah died for our sins. He was buried and raised on the third day, that he appeared alive to many witnesses. Now, the message then that he's talking about is resurrection. He had to die or there is no resurrection. He was buried, he rose, and he appeared. The appearance is the proof of the resurrection. And so his focus is on resurrection. So I want us to look at that as he unfolds it in the chapter um, with the idea that in our culture... Many believe in the resurrection of Jesus in vain because the implication of the resurrection doesn't affect them. They simply believe in it as a historic fact or as a a tenet of faith. So in chapter 15, verse 12, he says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. Actually, he uses vain more than three times, twice in this verse. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain, worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
Now, Paul's making a point, and his point is uh, against what appears to be some statement by the Corinthians that they have downplayed the resurrection. Now, there are two possibilities for this. I think one is more likely than the other. One possibility is that within the Jewish community in the Corinthian congregation, there are Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection. It's all about this life, and that's, that was within Judaism. I think that's an unlikely notion. <coughs> what I think is more likely is that the Corinthians, the Gentiles that dominated the church, who had come out of paganism, and Paul had talked about them coming out of paganism, <coughs> had a view of the afterlife that downplayed the resurrection. The, the pagan rule, the pagan view of life and death was that life now in these bodies was somewhat of a trap. We were trapped in these bodies awaiting the freedom of the spirit when these bodies were finally peeled off and then we would enter the spirit world. Now the pagan spirit world was not that great because you kind of lost the body and you were in this kind of nether world and it was you were a shadow of or a shade of what you were before but your reputation would continue. Okay? But it was a holy I don't mean that H O L Y W, a wholly other world, and it was the final world. Paul's having none of that. The, the Jewish sect that he belonged to before he became a believer in Yeshua was the Pharisees, and they believed in resurrection. Resurrection means that God is active in this real creation and that the redemption that God's going to bring about is in this creation, not somewhere else. We just got to get through this world, and then we get to go into the next. That's pagan. Judeo-Christian faith believes that God's going to fix this one. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then our message has no meaning. Christ is not raised. We're liars about what we've said. And those of you who have relatives and friends who have died, they're gone. And there's no point in what we're doing. So Paul's argument is that salvation is in this creation. God is saving this creation. And there was a demonstration of God's power over death in the resurrection of Christ, assuring ours as well. And so he makes a big deal about that. Now he's going to give them an understanding of how this is going to take place. And he does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 and following. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, we're not hoping for a resurrection just that we have hope and you know I there's a song that used to be popular I'm glad it's not so popular said if heaven was never promised it would be worth it just living with you now Paul says if in this life we have hope we're of all men most miserable this is not there are good things in this life but all in all if you weigh it all together it's not that great 
okay? He says, we're of all men to be pitied if, if our hope is here. Now, he doesn't mean our hope is going to be manifest in what God will do with here, but if this is it, no resurrection, no changing of this present state, then, then it's all vain. So he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. <coughs> then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things subject under his feet. Uh, let me read this so that you'll understand it. God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when he, the Holy Spirit, says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted uh, who put all things in subjection to him, Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Jesus, so that God may be all in all. A lot of pronouns there. <coughs> in other words, God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is doing something. The resurrection is this way. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits. First fruits is the guarantee that what starts in the harvest will end. Then those who are Christ that is coming, when Jesus returns, the trumpet sounds, and we are raised from the dead, that we will enter into the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, he will rule and reign in that kingdom, ultimately with a rebellion at the end of it, and he will put all powers under his feet. And then the end will come, and there will be a new heaven and new earth and all of that. So Paul has taken the whole eschaton and put it in a few verses. He gets it. I don't know if the Corinthians got it. I doubt many of us get it. Now what's critical here? What's critical here is that this required the two most important aspects of our faith. Incarnation and resurrection. By man came death. God formed man from the dust of the ground. Breathed into him the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Man sinned. We died. As in Adam, we all die. So we needed, for full salvation to take place, he had to take on the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to become flesh in order to destroy death. Can't do that outside of the flesh. That's why the resurrection and the body is so critical in that sense. So he became one of us incarnated so that his resurrection could transfer to us like Adam's death transferred to us. But this plan has a timing that God has. The first fruits took place almost 2,000 years ago. Those who are Christ at his coming is nearer now than when we first believed. That doesn't help us with the timing, but you get the idea. And then the end, after the kingdom has been established, and then is all of that is handed back over to God the Father. That plan is part of what God is doing. And in the meantime, 
there will be a struggle against the world and against the enemy of God, the God of this world, and that's where persecution and difficulties and all the things that we talk about are coming from. So Paul lays this out. (coughs) Resurrection is the heart of our faith. We're not just going off to heaven. It's about reestablishing God's creation. That's the total of salvation. Now, (coughs) Paul's going to give what I think are brilliant arguments against the absurdity of holding a faith in Christ that does not have as its essence resurrection. And he does that in verses uh, 29 following. He says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ, that I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, then let's eat and drink, and because tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company, bad ideas, corrupts good morals. So, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Now, this section has been terribly misunderstood. Paul begins with a statement that is awkward in the Greek. And because of that, Strict Greek grammar people go one direction and commentators go another direction and I think they both go off track. If you look at the context, Paul is arguing that if there is no resurrection, then why are we doing this? Why am I suffering for Christ if he isn't raised from the dead? Why am I fighting wild beasts? I'm doing that for you. What's the earthly purpose of that and what are you being baptized for a dead guy he's not saying as the mormons and others say baptize on behalf of the dead he's saying why are you being baptized for dead when we're baptized we're baptized into christ's death and resurrection no you're only baptized into his death so what's that for i always tease when i baptize that we're going to hold somebody down for three days and three nights, right? To make sure they're really dead, so they really know what we've never done that, right? But the idea is, baptism has as its focus the coming out of the water, the resurrection. Why are we baptized for someone who didn't rise from the dead? That's his point. I think it's a powerful point. It's missed in most uh, messages on this section. (coughs) So Paul says... There is no point in suffering any of this stuff if there is no resurrection. That's the focus of our faith. Now he's going to deal with the mockers, because there are some. And so the mockers then show up in verse uh, (coughs) um, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come up with? Now, here's what happens. You get the people who are focused only on materialism. Okay? 
So if we bury a body and it decomposes, or we put it in the ocean and it's gone, and, uh, or it's burned up, or what, how is that, how is that happening? Now this is almost mocking. Oh, you believe in a literal physical resurrection? How quaint. And what Paul's going to say, you're talking like a fool. You're talking about someone who sees only the things that are seen, which are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. There's more to it than the physical here. But the physical is included. So here's his answer. Someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And God gives it a body just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So his first argument is a farming argument. I take a a grapevine, and I take the whole grapevine, or I take an apple tree, and I take the whole apple tree, and I dig a hole in the ground, I put the whole tree underground and bury it. And you'd say, that's not how it works. Okay? You just take the seed, doesn't look anything like the tree, and for all intents and purposes, is dead. And you place it in the ground, and then God gives it a body as he pleases. And from each seed comes a different body. There's variability here, but the same process. (coughs) So he says, all flesh is not the same flesh, verse 39. There's a flesh of men, there's another flesh of beasts, there's another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. (coughs) You can see him going back to Genesis 1. (coughs) Excuse me. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earth is another. There (coughs) There are angelic bodies. There are physical bodies. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. And even the stars differ from one another. In God's creation, there is variability that is meant to to be unified in God's glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now here's his comparison. Seed, full fruitful tree. Seed, full fruitful tree. Seed, full fruitful tree. It is sown... Perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, here's the danger. So he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, we lose this because we think of spirits as not real. We think of spirits as, since they're not physical, they have no properties. They have properties. Okay? When Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, his body was transfigured, 
there were two guys talking to him who had not been resurrected. One named Moses, one named Elijah, talking to him about his death. They were, they were substantial, they were spiritual, but they didn't have the body that will be resurrected that will be primarily focused on the spirituality and not on the material. These material bodies have a spirituality to them. But our spiritual bodies will have a materiality to them. That's why Jesus said a a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood as you see me have. Flesh and bone, he said. So the idea is that Paul's trying to get us to see that this is broader than than we understand. He says, so... As it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. When our body dies, our spirit cannot remain. In the resurrection, our spirit will emanate the life of the body and not be subject to the life of the body limiting the spirit. Very different priority. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth and therefore earthy. The second man is from heaven. So is the earthly, so also those who are earthly. As the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. John says it this way. Beloved, we are now the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we see him, we will be as he is. Wow. We will bear the full image of the resurrected Christ. And we have no idea what that is. So, his argument is, the natural must precede the spiritual, the earthly must precede the heavenly. They're distinct, but because we born one and we trust in him, we will bear the other one as well. So, how is that going to happen? Well, in chapter 15, verse 49, he has said that we will bear that. So in verse 50, he's going to tell us. <coughs> now remember the order. First the first fruits, then Christ when he comes back. What is Christ coming back to do? Establish the kingdom. Can Jesus establish the kingdom and us not be resurrected? No. So Paul says this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the perishable does not inherit The imperishable. So let me tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, I've always thought that would be the perfect verse over a nursery at a church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But that's that's not what it's talking about, okay? It's talking about, you've got to have a verse, right? If we can pull, I know the plans I have for you out of context, the babies can pull that one out of context, right? So, here's the deal. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. Not all of us will taste death. But all of us will taste the resurrection. 
That's why Jesus said, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And the one who is dead will live again. At the second coming, there will be living believers and dead believers. The dead will be raised first and we who are alive will be caught up with them. So he's going to give us that same information. And he does it here this way. I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Meaning we who are alive. Because this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. Now, notice this is not the rapture. He doesn't say anything about people disappearing and going to heaven. He says that when the Lord comes back, the dead will be raised. We will be changed. We'll be caught up to be with them in the air. I believe we're headed for Jerusalem where he will put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. Okay? No side trip to heaven and then back. Direct to the kingdom. Okay? Now the idea here is that whether you taste death or don't taste death, you will be changed. Well, that's fascinating. Because Moses tasted death. But Elijah was caught up. The imagery is clear that at the resurrection, we will taste resurrection even if we haven't tasted death. <clears throat> so now he says this. When this perishable has put on the imp- The perishable has put on the imperishable. And when the mortal has put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. The last enemy to be defeated is death. The last thing God will do on this earth. To establish the kingdom. Is the resurrection. The resurrection is the heart of. Hope and basis of everything we believe. If, if you can, all the other doctrines are peripheral to the belief that God will raise the dead. And therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. He dealt with sin. The power of sin is the law. He Brings the law into fulfillment. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now Paul says, okay guys, with that in mind, with that as your focus, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, he says, Get busy doing the will of God. Not this life. Not this life's purpose. The will of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And these things will be added to you. The resurrection alters the priority. And that's why Paul says, The first important thing that I told you was resurrection. Because it changes your whole worldview and perspective. So, the truth and good news is that our victory 
is such that we should remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Living the truth of the kingdom in this present world while we await his appearing. Now, I believe Christians have lost the centrality of the resurrection for our faith and our hope. We have changed salvation for self-improvement and a blessed life. We are succumbing to assimilation into our culture, trying to be relevant to evangelize them, being seeker-friendly, we becoming them more than they're becoming us. And we are weak against any form of persecution that might come our way. I think we have to regain the good news of resurrection and the hope it secures. Because it changes my perspective of how I'm going to live in this life. And it also holds me in the midst of persecution. And that's what the uh, Benedict Option series will be about. Let's pray.